0: Our scripture lesson this morning comes from Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 17, and I'll be reading out of the Common English Bible. Ooh, I will be reading out of the Common English Bible. On the, fe- on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, Jesus and said, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover meal? And he replied, go into the city to a certain man and say, the teacher says, my time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. The disciples did just as Jesus instructed them, and they prepared the Passover. That evening, he took his place at the table with the 12 disciples. And as they were eating, he said, I assure you that one of you will betray me. Deeply saddened, each one said to him, I'm not the one, am I, Lord? He replied, the one who will betray me is the one who dips his hand into me with this bowl. The, into, with me into this bowl. The human one goes to his death just as it is written about him. But how terrible is it for that person to, who betrays the human one? It would have been better for him if he had never been born. Now Judas, who would betray him, replied, It's not me, is it, Rabbi? And Jesus answered, You said it. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat, this is my body. He took a cup, gave thanks, and gave it to him, saying, Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, so that their sins may be forgiven. I tell you, I won't drink wine again until that day, when I drink it in a new way with you in my Father's kingdom. Then, after singing songs of praise, they went to the Mount of Olives. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.
1: I'm going to turn my mic on, because I think that might help. Please pray with me. Great and holy and loving and gracious God, may the words of my mouth and meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, because you, God, are our strength and our rock, and our Redeemer. Amen. Sometimes we coordinate um, worship services, well, we, we coordinate worship services to different degrees depending on a lot of uh, variables, but um, I was struck as we sang, particularly the first song, particularly this part, um, that, that God changes us and changes the, what we see and what we seek. That seems to me to kind of really encapsulate what we want to do with these five weeks on A Closer Look. Um, And so I invite you to consider, what is it about God that has changed you? And how did that change come about? How is that change still coming about or still going on? Because um, I hope you don't think God has offered you all the change that God intends to offer you. Our series, it's called A Closer Look, it'll run through the month of August, and it starts with communion, partly because communion is the first Sunday of the month, and we're starting the series of the month on the first Sunday of the month, but as I pondered what we're going to do with this series, and I realized it started with communion, the seeds of this message were sown then, and, and it went not exactly like I expected, not at all like I thought it would when we started talking about doing something on on back to basics or a closer look because um left to my own devices i would not have made communion a starting point for the christian life but communion defines us as god's people and as followers of jesus and i'm coming to believe that communion is essential perhaps because it presumes one thing that might be the most basic to following Jesus, and that is confession. I know you say the word confession in church, and you're all of a sudden wondering, wait, did I slip into a Catholic church and not realize it? No, you didn't, we're still United Methodist Church. But also, um, I searched up as I was preparing for this, do Eastern Orthodox Christians practice confession? And Autofill, before I finished it, typed this, Autofill tried to make me ask, Are Ether, do, Easter, do Eastern Orthodox Christians belong to the true church? And so I said, thanks for that, Autofill. Because it struck me that I had to admit that at one time in my life, I, I, I was either convinced that The whole orthodox part of Christianity, perhaps, but certainly the Roman Catholic Church, was not part of the true church. Which is kind of ironic because for at least a few hundred years, the Roman Catholics were convinced, dogmatically, that none of us Protestants were part of the true church. Now, I'm not nearly as arrogant as I once was to presume that... I know who is in the true church and who's not. I'm way more careful with my claims in that regard than I used to be. I've come to realize you don't have to agree with me on everything to be a sincere, you know, true follower of Jesus. What's even more relevant for today? You don't have to meet my standards to receive God's grace. I realized all that mostly because... I don't want it to spell out all the details of every doctrine that I believe. But also, I don't believe everything exactly the way I did 30 years ago. And honestly, I've got some reservations about anybody in the Christian faith whose understanding of following a Christian hasn't changed in 30 years. Maybe that's safe for me to say because I didn't know any of you 30 years ago. And you didn't know me. So, however reticent I am to about making claims about who's in the true church and who's not in the true church, um, I'm willing to say this. If you've never practiced confession, you are not part of the true church. I don't mean gone into a confessional booth with an ordained priest. I mean if you've never practiced confessing, you're not part of the true church. And that doesn't mean God won't welcome you. What it means is if you don't confess, if you have never confessed, you haven't accepted God's gracious offer for your life. To be able to accept God's offer of salvation, of redeemed life, it depends on our having confessed our sins. And I emphasize the our sins because we're really good at confessing other people's sins. it's a lot easier. We're willing to do it out loud and in public. A lot of what happens on social media that isn't cute pictures of kittens and puppies is people confessing other people's sins. Did you notice in today's scripture, in Matthew 26, that none of the disciples, not even Judas, is thinking of all of his brothers' or sisters' sins? In this passage, Jesus Um, is preparing for the institution the first time, the the Lord's Supper, the first time they have communion, Jesus consecrates these simple elements as part of a meal and, and makes it more than just a meal for them. And it probably seemed out of nowhere to them that Jesus all of a sudden says, I assure you that one of you will betray me. What if Jesus walked in here right now and said, I assure you that one of you will betray me. What would we say? Would some of us say, oh, no, Jesus, they all left this church already? Would we say, catch ourselves looking around the room to see who's the most likely? You all look at each other. That's great, playing along. I appreciate that. Or maybe, no, Jesus, nobody here is going to betray you. Check the next church over, or maybe DeSoto or Waxahachie. You'll find somebody there to betray you. The thought that haunts each of the 12 disciples is, I'm not the one, am I? Every one of them, including Judas, asked themselves, am I the one that's going to betray you? It is a kind of confession. Because each of them, in asking Am I the one that's going to betray you? Each of them admits that in himself there's this possibility that they could be the one to betray Jesus. And that's that's how the atmosphere is prepared for that initial sacrament, the first of the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion. By giving each of the disciples an opportunity to pass the buck to point the finger at somebody else or to confess that they have within themselves this possibility this this weakness at least potential weakness of betraying Jesus so when we approach Jesus honest about our own weaknesses that's the only way if we're honest with ourselves that Jesus can start to heal us so the real challenge is to admit to ourselves and to someone that we trust that we have weaknesses that we have within us, brokenness, enough brokenness that we could be the one to betray Jesus. And again, I know it's a lot easier to identify other people's brokenness. I I do. When I see somebody standing on a corner or they can't even stand up on a corner with a sign to ask me for money, I can diagnose their brokenness, man, before I even pass them if the light is green and I don't even have to take time to stop and, and have that awkward avoidance of eye contact, I, I, I can identify their brokenness. At my more spiritual moments, I offer a prayer for them, but sometimes that prayer is like the public in, in, in um, Jesus' story in Luke, where um, my prayer is more like, thank you, God, that I'm not like this poor, miserable person sitting on a corner. Or maybe it's, it's really spiritual And then I'm able to say, you know, if they just actually try harder, if they get a job, if I, whatever, I know nothing of their story except at this moment in time they're on a corner with a sign looking for help. But I make up the rest of their story. And in doing so, I confess their sins for them. When I diagnose somebody else, I'm confessing their sins for them. Which never really works because I don't know anyone but me. I don't know what anyone but me. I don't know exactly what anyone but me needs to confess. And you don't know exactly what anyone but you needs to confess. I told you I'm coming to believe that confession might be the most basic part of following Jesus. As I've spent the last couple weeks revisiting some of the challenges that we face as a church over the last few years... I'm more and more convinced we need confession. I attended and earned a Master's in Divinity from Asbury Theological Seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky. During the four years I was there, we regularly heard of this deep longing for another revival. The Asbury Revival started on February 3rd, 1970, quite a while before I was in seminary. It started at a Tuesday morning chapel Chapel started at 10 and was scheduled to end at 11, but it didn't end at 11. In fact, it didn't end the next day or the next day. It didn't end for six days. They had six days of, of constant ongoing prayer and singing and, and ministry and confession. That the revival sent out teams to other campuses around the country that also caught revival. Lives were changed Neighbors were drawn and that wanted nothing to do with it. And even even when the media showed up, they'd they'd enter Hughes Chapel and, and say they could tell something was different about this space at this time. Lives were changed, hurts were healed, sins were forgiven. There are videos on YouTube, of course, that you can watch about that week. A book was written before YouTube about that week of experience at Asbury College. In the mid to late 80s, when I was there, you couldn't go a week without somebody mentioning the revival. And it was always in terms of wondering when, hoping it would, praying for it to happen again. But I felt then, and I feel to this day, that it, it seemed like a lot of the energy, wanting that revival to happen again, was lost on longing for the past event to happen more than really longing for God's presence. And we can catch ourselves falling victim to this same kind of thing, that we want an event or an experience or a feeling more than we want God. Then I remember somebody mentioning somebody that had been at the, the actual outbreak of the Asbury Revival, that it started with one student standing up and offering a confession. Secular studies, recent secular studies, have shown the value of confession. The in incredible, redeeming value of confession. But they've also shown that half a confession leaves one feeling worse than no confession at all. A full confession leaves one feeling almost as free as if one hadn't done whatever it is one needs to confess. But a half or partial confession leaves one feeling worse than when they were just holding it within themselves. So, secular studies support the value of confession. And many of us, though, we're Protestants. We're rugged American individualists. And we likely feel that we don't have to answer to anybody but ourselves. We especially don't answer to a pope or some hierarchy that required us to confess our sins before receiving communion. When I was nine, we lived on the U.S. Navy base in Chinhe, South Korea. The base had a fence around it that was topped with barbed wire. I don't know that the fence was needed. I don't think we had any real security risks. But it provided this this firm security, secure perimeter for all of our playing. And we were literally all over that base to the edges, because you knew where the edges were, right? So one time, I was nine, I took 10 snips to the fence and started to cut a hole in it. I have no idea why. I didn't get far enough to actually go through the fence. I got far enough that that night I could not go to sleep without confessing to my parents what I'd done. As soon as I confessed it, I slept like a baby. We had a few more repercussions after the confession. I knew enough to know that I hadn't done anything major, but I'd done something wrong, and I had to confess that. After Jesus' resurrection, he appeared to the ten disciples in in a sealed room. And there were ten because Judas was already gone. And Thomas had gone down to the bodega to get some more Diet Coke. And then John tells us, it was still Sunday, still Resurrection Day. And John tells us, that evening, while the disciples were behind closed doors, because they were afraid of the Jewish authorities, Jesus came and stood among them he said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. When the disciples saw the Lord, they were filled with joy. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. And then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they aren't forgiven. Now, You can make this into an institutional thing where the organized church requires confession and some few are set apart, charged with hearing confessions and pronouncing forgiveness. I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind, and I'm not knocking the huge part of Christendom that practices it that way. But I think what Jesus had in mind for all of us in John 20 is that it's God's job to forgive sins and God knows them all Far better than we do, even if we stop and talk after the service so we can get our notes straight. But a lot of us and a lot of people around us have trouble experiencing the truth that God forgives their sins if we just tell them that it comes from an invisible God. So I fully believe Jesus is setting in practice in John 20. People in human flesh telling other people in human flesh that God has forgiven their sins. It's why God came in human flesh in the first place to get the message through to us in a way that we could understand and receive it. It's why Jesus told his followers to forgive people's sins. You don't have to decide which sins God forgives. Forgive any sin that someone confesses to you. Feel free to add words like On the authority that God gives me in John chapter 20, your sins are forgiven. Because which sins did Jesus die for? All of them. Perhaps even the ones we make up for other people. Which sins are forgiven? The ones we confess. In Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together, which we just talked about last Sunday at Book Club, he says that we need to be specific in our confession so that we can receive specific forgiveness. Bonhoeffer says, and I believe, that this is one of the basic reasons, one of the most basic reasons for Christian community. He also says, and I also second this as if my vote counts, but that we confess to trusted brothers and sisters who will keep our confession as God does, just between us. And he goes on to say, In confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. The sin must be brought into the light. The unexpressed must be openly spoken and acknowledged. All that is secret and hidden will be made manifest. It's a dark struggle until the sin is openly admitted but God breaks gates of brass and bars of iron. We cannot begin to know the joy, the peace, the hope, the life that God has for us if we refuse to confess. And confession is part of the service of communion. So I invite you to join me in a prayer of confession. It's from the communion service. It has a unison, an out loud prayer that we will say together. And since I don't think I have the words to throw for you, I'll say them, and like Kennedy has trained you, thank you, you can repeat after me. After the out loud prayer of confession, there's a time of silent prayer of confession, because let's face it, there may be some things that you're not ready to confess out loud here in front of everybody. That is totally all right if there are things that linger in your soul that you've confessed to God but you can't quite seem to get let go, then I strongly encourage you, not during our silent confession, but sometime I strongly encourage you to confess that out loud to someone you trust, to hold it between you and them and God. So after the silent prayer of confession... then you can hear words of absolution that I'll say and that you're invited to read after me and I'll go through those um, a little bit at a time so that you can catch that. So please join me now as you're able for this prayer of confession. Let us pray. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed To be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love. We have not loved our neighbors. And we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience. Through Jesus Christ our Lord.